You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Welcome to the virtual Skylight Books. We are really excited to be presenting three amazing poets um, in celebration of Paul Tran's book, All the Flowers Kneeling, which is out now. Um, My name is Hallie. I am the events manager at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. And without further ado, it is my very great pleasure to first introduce to you Hugh Min Wen, who is the author of two collections of poetry, This Way to the Sugar from Wright Bloody Press in 2014 and Not Here from Coffeehouse Press in 2018, which went on to win the Tom Gunn Award for Gay Poetry. Some awards and fellowships Hugh has received include the Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship from Stanford University, a McKnight Writing Fellowship, and a National Endowment for the Arts Literal literature fellowship. His work has appeared in Poetry Magazine, Best American Poetry, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. He is a graduate of the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. Originally from the Twin Cities, Hugh now lives in the Bay Area where he teaches and serves as the lead poet mentor at Youth Speaks. Fatima Askar is an artist who spans across different genres and themes. She has been featured in various outlets such as Time, NPR, Teen Vogue, and the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Her first book of poems, If They Come For Us, explored themes of orphaning, family, the violence of the 1947 partition of South Asia, the legacy of colonization, borders, shifting identity, and violence. She also co-edited an anthology for Muslim people who are also women, transgender nonconforming and or queer halal if you hear me she is the writer and co-creator of the emmy nominated brown girls a web series that highlights friendship among women of color and wrote and directed the short film got game she has also been in development with freeform and universal universal tv and has been in a writer's room as a co-producer for marvel and last but definitely not least Paul Tran received their BA in history from Brown University and MFA in poetry from Washington University in St. Louis, where they were the Chancellor's Graduate Fellow and Senior Poetry Fellow. They have been awarded a 2021 Fellowship in Literature from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, and the Discovery Boston Review Poetry Prize. Currently a Wallace Stegner at Stan- a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Paul's work appears in The New Yorker, Poetry, and elsewhere. I can't wait to hear all of these incredible poets read. Please join me in giving them a huge welcome to the stage. Yay. Hi everybody. I'm so glad to be here. So excited to help my sister celebrate their book, All the Flowers Kneeling. You should get it. You should buy it. 
you should pray to it, cry in it, eat it, rip it apart, put it in your mouth, shit it out. I think that's a Mary Rufa poem. Yeah, you have to like eat the poem, then you have to shit it out. Something like that. Um, uh, I'm gonna read a few poems <laughs> and then uh, and then gonna pass it along. Also, I hope y'all like our euphoria lighting. I, sh I showed up. I showed up to the to the Zoom, and they both had uh, fun lights, and I did not, and so I had to go out and get some. Um, but yes, I'm gonna read poems and get out of your way. Every time I change my mind about dying, I have to convince my body. Almost daily, I think of how I wasted my last drink on a vodka cranberry, swearing it all off after pissing some stranger's bed. There's a dream where I pin down my life and take its temperature. Canary Fahrenheit, Fox fur Celsius, a quick summary of my body. For so long, I didn't want to be touched, and then I did. Perhaps it's too early to be finished with everything Paul once told me the, co the context, which at the time had nothing to do with him dying. Roca in his jawline says, if I shut up about beauty, I can become it. Before the laxatives, it was the pills that turned everything, even water, bitter. How did I learn these habits? Lemon water in the morning, licking the end of a thread to pass it through a needle. I would never say my mother hated me, just that she wanted me to hate myself enough to change. I think the topic of conversation in which I am last to join is about living, but who knows? Usually I'm wrong. Usually I show up just in time to be wrong. When did I know? Maybe during a game of chicken, when he managed to double back and forth across the freeway before I could even brave it. Maybe at the outlook above St. Paul, when he grew bored of the view waiting for me to reach the top. When he blew out the candles before we finished singing. When he strung a bottle rocket to his gray tooth. Or maybe it was at the lake the day after he kissed me when tornado sirens cleared the beach and I had to beg him to leave the water when we stashed our bikes inside a dumpster, when we ducked into the pawn shop for shelter, when they gave us dry, dry clothes to change into, we changed right there beside the lawnmowers. When he said he'd kill me if I looked, I apologized and turned my back to face a wall of empty aquariums. When he laughed and spun me around, he said he hated how small the cold made his penis. When we wandered the store, he cataloged everything he would own one day, hockey sticks, futon, PlayStation. When at first he beckoned me to the jeweler's case, I couldn't make out the gun inside, his hands fogging up the glass, the sky forming a, fu a funnel above us. And then this is going to be my last poem. Um, Monica West takes the stage in a dress ready to fringe fuck your conservative relatives into a bathhouse. 
her wig jet black, a dance of crow feathers, powerhouse of the Midwest, back alley gl glamour sex auntie in a pair of six inch heels, disco ball bastard slut in the blood moon, she snaps her fingers and all of my dollar bills fly from my hands. My rent, my next three meals, all at the foot of her patent leather mercy. I don't believe in psychiatrists. That's a lie, I do. Um, I don't believe in the church of therapy. Another lie. But I do believe in my friends. I believe in healing. I believe my friends who tell me they are sad or scared, but still need to get out of the house just for the night, just for tonight. I believe there is no shame in showing up to the club wearing sweatpants. I believe that 10 p.m. every Saturday in Northeast Minneapolis, a drag queen streaks a beam of light across the high points of her cheeks and transports me to a new world. Denaz and I aren't amateurs. We know better. We show up early. We make reservations. We sh Every week, every Saturday, we claim the good seats. Rookie queers stand in the back. We tell all our friends that Vicky's got some of the best fried chicken in Minneapolis, which doesn't really mean much, considering the white folks this far north either underspice or overspice their food, like they're overcompensating for history, for their ancestors' long legacy of trying to eradicate flavor from the entire fucking planet, but leave it to these faggots to get it right. Spice just right, cook just right, look just right, lips, eyeliners, tights just right. We don't come here for the food. We don't come here because the white folks are better here than they are in the real world. Real world, because after all, after last call, they will all walk into a world where their clean faces have been the destination and the path of our unmaking. Because after all, no blacks, no Asians, no spice, no rice, no fats, no femmes. They push my friends and say, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Don't see you standing, standing there. We don't come here to fight, though we will fight. Look here, when we show up the, to the club, to the party, to our jobs, at our worst, know that we are always ready to be our best, show out, show up, show the fuck up to a country that uninvites you to a parade, show up anyways. Monica West announces she is moving to Omaha, Nebraska. My first thought is why? My second thought is still why? And then I think about Saturday, the one after the election or the one after the shooting or the one after, or the one the night before, or the one the night of. I think about every inevitable Saturday that will follow every inevitable tragedy. I think about the world on fire and the music we choose to play anyways. And I wonder if I will ever be brave enough to leave one day. If I will one day ever get out of this town, this country, this world of sanctuary is not a place, but the people we love all under the same temporary and impossible lights. How can anyone convince us to stay? How do I stop people from leaving? And we don't come here for sanctuary. We know better. We come here for Monica West, for Victoria DeVille, for Kamari Williams, for the way Kyle's ass looks tonight. We come here because I think Denez would make a great drag queen because I see a world where the people I love sing their favorite songs. I see a world where the crowd cheers for their brown and perfect bodies. I see a world where I stay and I stand at the foot of the stage and wait for them to reach down and take, I don't know, my money, my hand, my fear of a world that refuses to know their glory. Thank you.
That was so beautiful. Oh, I feel so um, grateful to be here, to be reading with you, to be celebrating our beloved sister Paula's book release into the world. Um, I feel really honored to be here with with both, you know, Hugh and Paula. And I've known Paula for so long. We've known each other for, is it? 10 years? 12 years. Eight? 12 years. 12. 12 <laughs> you don't even remember. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't know dates, but I was like, it's a long ass time. I've known Paula for 12 years. Like, I think about that and that's, that's incredible to me. And I feel really blessed to be, um, to be Paula's, to be uh, sistered by Paula, to be familyed by Paula, to be, so in this life and in this walk with Paula and to see um to see how hard you know Paula works like I think I've I've witnessed ever since 12 years ago you know the kind of dedication the kind of rigor that Paula brings to everything um and I feel like we're lucky to be in their presence and I'm just so excited for this book um so I'm gonna read a few poems and then I'm gonna get out of the way um okay this poem, these are going to be, uh, or at least like a few of them are going to be new, newer. Um, this poem is called, They're in their Lord of the Flies Bag. They're in their Lord of the Flies Bag, Terrence says about the boys nestled in the mouth of the waterfall, the one boy's eyes to the sky, legs wrapped around the rock to keep him alive, afloat, the river running over him, kissing him just so his body an interruption in the water, the rush and roar of its call, partitioned by the fall, dividing it from itself. The other boys perched around him like water nymphs, staring off beyond the dip in the mountains where the sun sets. The boys so landed, they become part of the land, the roots rooting around their ankles. Yes, in their lorded fly bag, but a lord of the flies before it gets dark, before they do what they do to Piggy, before the split and hunt, wild still, boys who jump from high where the trees are into the water cradled so lovingly by rock, boys who ford the river in their socks, throwing their shoes to any soft land willing to catch, the water, a mother, both healing and scolding, both soft and gathering pressure around the fall. Shallow enough to walk, deep enough to dive, the boys know her like their own, where to step and where to not, how to say hello, when to let her sleep, their big toes scraping into the moss to hold them steady, fingernails finding the hook between roots to anchor, to pull their bodies upwards, the coquilles coquilling their song, the sun winking its set, everything green, nothing poisoned. Alhamdulillah, to know land so well you can play with it, to never second guess where your foot lands, how to get your body where it wants to go, to be so frummed, you from. Alhamdulillah, to cradle the fall and not fall, to hear the rivers rush and feel safety, wild, the boys, and their lord of the flies bag, yes, the boys there on top of the waterfall, 
The boys, wild but not lost. The boys, wild and belonged. Um, this poem is called, I don't know what will kill us first, the race war or what we've done to the earth. So I count my hopes. The bumblebees are making a comeback. One snug tight in a purple flower I pass to get to you. Your favorite color is purple, but Prince's was orange and we both find this hard to believe. Today the park is green. We take grass for granted. The leaves chuckle around us. Behind your head, a butterfly rests on a tree. It's been there our whole conversation. By my old apartment was a butterfly sanctuary where I would read and two little girls would sit next to me. You caught a butterfly once, but didn't know what to feed it. So you trapped it in a jar and gave it to a girl you liked. I asked if it died. You say you like to think it lived a long life. Yes, it lived a long life. It lived a long life. And then this poem um, I wrote in the beginning of quarantine. And um, it's called, When We Thought the World Would End, I Didn't Think It Would Be Like This. Watching my beloveds through FaceTime, the tens of tens of apps downloaded so I can hear the scattered voices of everyone I love and the silence of my apartment building so loud. My whole world is now my kitchen and yellow couch, and I haven't touched anyone in days. My fingers press into my own body. I surprise myself in the mirror. It's raining outside and my skin feels so hollow. The meditation says to think of a happy day. I remember being packed in that wooded house for Angel and Hugh's graduation, and Inez saying, the bitch can't dance, as I wiggled my flailing body trying, and how easy it was to hold Sophia's hand, my knee against Shira's in the back of the minivan, to brush the hair out of Sam's eyes as we played jaw rule too loud on the way to weep at our friends graduating the bitch of an MFA, the years we've all spent in heartache of a thing we might be good at, the years spent chasing cities, moving farther and farther from our loves because this might be it and might is a strong word like this might be our new lives and this might be forever. The ellipses of waiting and all the mites pile up together around my bed. In the morning, I have to sift through the mites to make my day worthwhile, to push my body into prayer. I have to work to not let the mites get stuck in my chest, to not drown in their sorrow. And we've spent years preparing for the apocalypse when the white boys took up torches and when that idiot got elected and ice continued to melt, but I never thought it would be like this, us all islanded, watching each other on screens. And before, when we could hold each other, when we didn't know it would end like this, Denez and I promised when the world was really coming to an end, like truly coming to an end, we would find each other in our best dresses. I would maybe even buy a fur and we'd ride it out together. And on the phone, we say, well, bitch, this might be it. Thank y'all. Thank, thank you, Hugh and Fatih, so much. Um, 
the only way I know how to counteract this deep emotion is to remind myself that I was also in that house with everybody and <laughs> did not hear a girl's name in this poem. <laughs> I specifically remember um, <laughs> sleeping in the living room outside of Fatih and Safia's room for the record, the historical record, which is a, maybe a good segue to this first poem. Um, I want to read a poem for Fatih, a poem for Hugh, and then a poem for you both. And the poem for Fatih, this is, the, po the poem is called Scientific Method and it takes its voice from a book bound in human skin, but it's not just any book, it's a book that's found in the library of the college we went to where I first met you that first week of school. Fatih was doing a poem for a pre-orientation. And let me tell you, I grew up feeling like I thought I had friends or the or those who I called my friends um, were people who loved me, but I didn't, I didn't quite know how to discern the love people gave from the love that I wanted. And I don't really feel like, um, you know, the people I loved from that time didn't always love me back in return. And when I stepped into that room and saw Fatih do her poems, the room shook alive in a way I'd never witnessed. And the, and the love that you could feel from the folks in the audience reaching out their hands. I remember thinking, first of all, incredible poems. Second of all, I want, I want to be loved like that, um, to be seen like that. And I read this poem for you because at the heart of it is a question about knowledge and if I learned how to ask questions, if I learned how to love learning, I learned it from you. And so this book, um, sorry, this poem takes its voice from a, from the body from which the skin to bind that book came from. And this body was dissected on in 1543 by the scientist Andreas Vesalius, out of which um, we learn everything we now know about human anatomy. And the reason for why the body is important is because Vesalius stole this body from, from graves of people he assumed would not be missed. And that is coded for perhaps a body of color, a body without money, um, a body of no status. And so scientific method. Of the books he wrote about me, my favorite is the book my master had bound with my skin. De humani corpus fabrica, he called it. Am I vain? Born poor, illiterate, oblivious to any life but this, never did I expect perpetuity. Never did I expect a man to want me the way he wanted me. Master didn't care how ugly I was. My nose fat, my thighs fat, my teeth the color of horseshit. Master dug me out from the ground. He took my corpse into his arms. He held me so close. I forgot I was a body. I became his body of work, biology, physiology, anatomy, master, doubting the old masters, believed doubt could draw a new map to the interior. In his classroom at the university, master had me undressed and laid on a table for all his pupils to see. 
He descended from his dais with the dynamism of a god, walking among his disciples. Whatever he dictated, they scribbled on their slates, lapping his theories and thoughts like dogs, lapping piss from a chamber pot. Some want to be holy, okay. Some want to be human. Some want to believe the nature of the human revealed, reveals the nature of the holy as master opened me, groin hard against my hips, hands in my guts, I opened him. I gave him nerve, tendon, muscle, ventricle, mandible, sternum, tibia, atria, labia, every aspect of myself. I had it resource or reason to fathom, heft of the mind, mechanics of the heart. He dissected, documented, paraded before his surgical circus, his spectators and skeptics, ooing and awing, shuffling in their seats, fanning back the heat, their interest with what could be found in me, formed from their interests with what could be found in them. Mm. <laughs> I wanted to tell them that they weren't special. They had no soul beyond their investment in the function of the soul, their gaze, not absolute, not pure, purely empirical, only imperial, impure, approximate. I wanted to tell them that there was much they'd never know. They thought they knew what knowledge was. <laughs> knowledge was me. The edge of doubt and belief of what persists master after master, reified and repudiated, preserved in a providence library, air conditioned, light controlled, touch and retouch, awaiting a new master to approach that edge. Um, you know, so many things in this life thinks that they own us, but they don't, but they don't. And I think through poetry, if we if we reclaim any sense of ourselves back, it's that we can't ever be owned. Um, and if we were to change to change the conditions of that, and this this poem that I want to read for you, um, it comes from a poem, a long poem, thirteen sections at the heart of the book, and. For a long time, I thought that as a poet of color, one of my imperatives was to show proficiency, that I could do this, particularly, and Hugh Fati, you might resonate with this too, we come from spoken word and slam poetry. A lot of times people don't believe that, you know, we even understand grammar or syntax or how sound works beyond the level of rhyme or how to sustain argument, how to use rhetoric. and. I thought about all of the poets like us who through the centuries have been inventors. I mean, in the last five years, Jericho Brown with the duplex, Terrence Hayes with the golden shovel, Patricia Smith's double golden shovel. It's just, it's there as evidence that we have been inventing and contributing to this field. And one of the inventions I make in this book is a new poetic form that I hope 
better reflects and enacts the experience of survivors. It reimagines the sonnet, sonnet crown and Sestina tradition. The sonnet having 14 lines, that concluding couplet that reaches for certitude or epiphany, this form, one of its rules is only 13 lines. Resist that impulse to say anything is for certain. Stay in doubt, stay in ambiguity. The sonnet crown lifts the last line of one sonnet, and cleanly as the first line of another, as if to say that what is gained from one experience is cleanly and neatly lifted to another. Whereas for myself, I found I was making similar mistakes again and again, regrets again and again. And yet what I went through did live on, did haunt my consciousness, but maybe not as cleanly. And so in this form, you got 13 lines. The last line has 13 words. Each of those words become the first word for each next line of the next section. Um, and it imagines again the Sestina because like so many lyric poems in the Western tradition, there's such a focus on the end words. That's where rhyme occurs in the Sestina. That's where those overlapping recurring end words occur. As if to say that as poets or as people, we move from an unknown beginning to a known end. As if we only have the option of a triumphant narrative, as if we only have the option of having you know, changed our life. I thought as a survivor, I moved from a known be from an from an from a known beginning, the fact that this trauma happened to an unknown end, to the life I wanted, to the people I love waiting for me there. How do I get there? And so by having these recurring words happen at the beginning, I'm trying to say that as a person and as a writer, I'm always moving towards the unknown. Survivors, we're always making the impossible possible. And so I want to read a section with Hugh in it. Thank you for driving me 17 million hours from New York City to St. Louis listening to Lord's melodrama for three hours on Prince Street because there was traffic. Um, so I'll read this one. I see not stars, but their light reaching across the distance between us. Section two. Us in the car, in the last hour of light, listening to melodrama as we waited to leave the city I escaped to after the incident. The rush hour of being seemed stranger and more familiar than I remembered when I first arrived from Providence and felt obliterated by the landscape towering over, around, and inside of me. It occurred to me that suddenly heading west, chasing the sunset, eliminating another day, my sister finding another way through traffic, all thought was a kind of framing. And if I reframed my thinking, I'd find that I wasn't leaving a life, but driving fast or slow toward a new one. I, I hated that. Not the thought, but how easy it was to believe. I hated that belief didn't erase or redeem this time I spent otherwise convinced in the tunnel need and what I confused for it grew smaller and smaller until too small even to view in the mirror like the skyline vanishing into the sky once 
history helped me see the future. That everything vanished, however, was the price of looking back. And I want to close um, with a poem for Fatih and for Hugh. Um, it's also for Denez and for Franny, um, who told me my eyebrows were terrible <laughs> and then proceeded to help me pluck them. <laughs> um, and, and just the, the vulnerability that requires to let the people love, who love you help you transform, help you change. Um, so this is for you both, the poem out of which the title appears. And it's a, it, it merges its voice with the Santa Ana winds, the winds responsible for the California wildfires, the Santa Ana. Desert born, wild as corn, head bitch, itchy clit. I throw a fit and meteorologists report rising mercury. My mercury is always in retrograde. I'm neither mercurial nor hmm, retro chic. I'm miraculous, chicken shit, cashing my checks, checking my balance, overdraft, override. O-M-G, I die every time I'm touched. Everything I touch erupts with flames. Everything got ha, the hots for me. I'm flamboyant. I'm a witch still burning. I stake my life on my red dress, redress, retweeted right off the runway. So damn vogue, I make you dip. Death drop so gorgeous, I make you drop dead. Jesus. My winter will outlast Anna Wintour. The only season is me, my sister, her steady hand, her eye on the sparrows, my eyebrows, plumes she plucks with care. I can't remember anybody ever giving me her face so close to mine. She sees not what I am, she sees what I can be. Symmetry, asymmetry, I know I'm ugly. I have no alibi. But to my chosen family, the family who chose me, I'm the most beautiful bitch in the world. Behold, my bitch face, my bitch glare, my bitch hair, my bitch nails, my bitch toe nails, my new bitch brows. Popwise. Who's that bitch? That bitch, bitch, that's me looking at myself for the first time. My sister taking a step back, a step forward, this angle, that angle. This is devotion, attention, revision, precision. A sister assisting her sister in becoming, coming back from the dead. Apocalypse, apocrypha, we're the only testament. We're the wind, the angels fail to stop from winding through Eden, bitch. You hungry, Sodom, bitch, look back. Southern California, bitch, take this butter knife to your husband's neck. Haven't you heard us? Howling down the cliffs, swishing our hips into the cajon like a lovesick coyote, all thrash, all ass, deep throat, whiplash. We bapped our eyes and Los Angeles lights up like a cigarette. Her American spirit, my Newport ashtray, ha, to ashtray, the greatest thing my sister tells me is being our greatest thing, our greatest wish. My wish, I want to say what happened to me. I want a say 
in what happens to me. Am I selfish for wanting things to make sense, to matter, to amount to something more than a tally of days and nights in the end if this bitch and her bitches must alone order and reorder heaven, cutting a new cheek, contouring a new nose, lining a new lip, because even the almighty can be too self-righteous to right their mistakes, ignorant of ignorance, then we demand the highest seats in heaven, game over, LOL, sorry, not sorry, so, wow, very, Mary, go round up your little lambs. Nothing is safe for me. Try me, give me the trial of the century. Give me liberty, give me death valley. I want all the flowers kneeling. Be <laughs> That's the motherfucking moment, bitch. <laughs> but truly, I need to get the I need to get the plug together. <laughs> Call for any. Also, the nerve to be like. Literally, we had our clothes on, and the car was like about to be outside, and she's just like, "Ah." Oh. This one looks not related to this one. <laughs> but you know, I learned I learned it was it was so much to just trust someone to be like, all right, you got it. You you I put myself in your hands. And usually I say that to like the universe or to the ancestors, but like it's it's I mean, Hugh, it's how I feel when you do my makeup. To put myself in your hands. Sorry, we just, I just went there. <laughs> Let me back it up. <laughs> Thank you so much. My sister, can you turn, can you turn, can you turn, can you turn your camera behind? Is, is, is it just me? Okay, no, there you are. Maybe it was just me. It was, I told you my, Wait, my internet. No. I was like, where do you go? Okay. No, no, you're back, you're back, you're back. Okay. I was like, wow. <laughs> not the Wi-Fi, not camera. the Wi-Fi being transparent. <laughs> Yeah. There is something. Yes. Can we, I mean, can we start? Yeah. Can I can we start, can I start talking? So I think I mean like that poem, I just is it's so um incredible in the way that it's both like it straddles this kind of um like the confidence and the humility of like being like being like, this is the confidence and this is the projection and I am that yeah. bitch and I'm with my friends and we are this bitch. And also these moments where you're like, and all, like you say these things where you're like, and also like, this is what I know of being in my body. Like, this is what I know. This is where I'm still at. Yeah. And um, I think that that is such an incredible thing to kind of balance in a poem like that, you know, cause I think of like, when we think about some of the lineage of poems that are kind of like, I'm that bitch worth it. Like I think of ego tripping. I think of like, you know, Nikki Giovanni and the ways in which like it kind of goes right there and you don't, it, there's not often the recall back, right? Yeah. There's not often the thing of like, well, also this. Yeah. And there's such a thing about like learning self in the eyes of your loves, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a theme that we kind of all reflect or reflected in our readings today. Mm -hmm. and. 
I just, I think that that's a very commendable thing of, of that poem and a thing that you do that's so brilliant. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I wonder, like, even in, in, in the, in your own poetics and your own kind of thing, like what, what is, how do you negotiate the line of um, basically humility and yeah. expert, like bad bitchery, like humility yeah. and expertise, like how, uh, mastery and, uh, you know, openness to the world. Yeah. And so kind of what, where are the ways that you kind of pull and draw from that? Mm. Um, I mean, paying homage to our non-binary lightings, I like, in a poem, when I reach for that sense of um, confidence, bad bitchery, self-righteousness even, like righteous rage, I think of what might be on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so often when I teach um, extremity of feeling or interiority to students, I have them, I give them the emotion wheel that we can find on Google Images. And I'm like, if your poem is about one feeling, Try to take, try to let the poem also be its opposite. Mm. So what is, you know, you're, you have a poem about love. What's on the, what's on the opposite side? How can it travel through all those nuanced emotions to get there? Just mm. because that's more, it feels a more complete human experience to say this and that, to also understand that I know one state of being because I'm not occupying, because I've, I have inhabited something else. The in this poem, it's. I th I thought about moments when I was most self-destructive, in my conviction to be somebody, mm. because I thought this this trauma has marked my life. I have to be somebody to redeem who I am, and so I'm just gonna go 100% full speed ahead. And yet, that wasn't just confidence. That was shame, and fear. And so I wanted to embed all of that in it. Um, and I, you know, I think some, some who are unfamiliar might only see the confidence at the top, but I imagine those of us who have passed through life having to surmount similar things, we can sense all the other layers underneath. And then in the craft of such a poem, you can sense it too. You have these stacked short line tercets that are really like cliffhangers. We are just fall, I feel like the reader is just falling off, tumbling and tumbling down. And there's something emotionally and psychologically pre precarious about that, perilous about that. And so it almost betrays the confidence. They both exist because, you know, we're non-binary, both exist. Boo boo, bow bow. Yes. Okay. <laughs> beautiful beautiful yeah. i love that um i have another question but he do you do you, do you have oh, yeah. one we're playing truth or dare truth question dare read a poem no you ask you ask you ask um i also i'm also struck by you know when you're when you were talking mm -hmm. about um your kind of like reinvention of the crown of sonnets right yeah. and this idea of the kind of for, like formalist bitch paula right like the the mm -hmm. kind of idea of you as formalist as and i know you this way i think you know we mm -hmm. all know you this way but the kind of rigor and the intentionality that you mm -hmm. bring to your work the rigor and intentionality that you bring to the line the rigor and intentionality that you bring to the craft mm -hmm. and also i think the way that sometimes um and you know again i'm projecting but this is also like things that we've had conversations mm -hmm. about but like the way that sometimes in dominant narratives that that get erased from us because mm -hmm. of our backgrounds and performance yes. 
because of our yes. backgrounds in spoken word, because of our yeah. backgrounds in, um, in, in what people, in what elitists would de would deem as like lower class avenues into yes. poetry or lower, yes. like less elitist ways of in, um, dipping into poetry. Yes. And so I wonder too, for you, like, what is, um, what are some of like the kind of form plays that you do in the book? Like, what mm -hmm. are some of the ways that you feel like you're really like excited about the way that you're yeah. pushing this forward? And then also like, what are even the ways in which like, like performance has actually influenced yes. the craft in a way mm -hmm. that is beyond just how people talk about performance and, yes. and the kind of reduction of performance, but how is performance actually elevating the craft of the work that you're doing? Yes. Um, my answer is gonna be in three parts and I'm gonna keep Love them it. as succinct as possible. The first part being, I don't think it's coincidence that poets like us were taken away the opportunity to think and form in a manner that is about liberation, that is about giving our hopes and dreams a shape. And instead we were fed this narrative of constriction, of containment. And the reason why I do not think it's coincidence is and these, this is my level 10 Pad Thai spicy. There's no scholarly evidence that substantiates this. It's just an idea that I've had. That the moment in time in the 20th, mid 20th century, when education and prosody began to fall out also occurred with a moment in time in which readers and poets of color were coming into things like the MFA program, which meant that it coincided with the Cold War, with the civil rights movement, with the time in which the state, the CIA funded agencies and programs that poured their money into our, you know, what we now understand as the poetry industry, like we're trying to bring up specific writers to make America look good abroad in their literature. And so, if, for example, a poet like us could use form to tell another story, to make another way of understanding the failures of democracy and capitalism possible, which meant that the form said something the content didn't say, how could the state monitor that? They're, the state can only monitor and censor ostensibly what is written. And so by taking form away from us, we are left with what? the direct utterance. And then what do we get made fun? What do we get ridiculed for now? Only being poets of direct utterance, knowing nothing. I just, I don't know, level 10 Pad Thai spicy, unproven, but one day, I don't know, the archives, when they're declassified, I'd be interested in young generations of poet scholars coming up and maybe proving some of this. How did, how did, our, how did the general education of poetry change as it has been diversified? for the last 50 years. I'd be curious. My second thing about this answer is so many, so many, so many um, formal ideas in this book. It's arranged in four sections to mimic the Greek rhetorical figure of chiasmus, the double cage, A-B-B-A, -B -B -A, which the bigger cage, the little cage inside the bigger cage, when it appears in literature, it signifies emotional and psychological entrapment. The speaker is stuck in some situation. And I know that a lot of people, because I've internalized this, wants someone with a story like mine to have a triumphant end. Things were good, she overcame it. But that's not how our life works. We move often in these circles. And so I wanted four sections so that we can go from A to B, 
be to be and then return to where we started. Not so much like the history is happening again, but the learning, everything these poems help me discover can begin again when I need to come back to them. Um, the book opens with a poem about the orchard of knowing and it moves to unknowing because I think an important trajectory in the book is moving towards uncertainty. It's, it deals with knowledge. Can you oh, read it? the first one? Okay. Into the shadows I go and find you, gorgeous as your necklace of 999 index fingers. All of them point at me as the kill to complete your mission, to return to your kingdom by returning to your king, a thousand human sacrifices. You chase me, you swing your sword, yet I remain beyond your reach. I surrender, I tell you. When you detach from your received idea of purpose, so you do, you set down your weapon. But I didn't mean the blade in your hand. I meant the blade in your mind. Um, and it's, yeah, it's the first story my mom ever told me. And I wanted the first story I told the world to be the first story she ever told me. It's also a spicy poem because it's in the persona of the Buddha. Don't tell <laughs> my mom. <laughs> but you know, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. I was definitely going to ask about like the the, the yes 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 <laughs> yeah yes. okay yeah, just yeah answered yeah. it yeah. <laughs> there are other things like I mean my nerdy things that I'll say is um some a reviewer caught this the other day and I was just so flabbergasted like in in one of the long poems that I have Scheherazade the sections that are interior are in Tercerima that echoes Dante's uh, divine comedy where that speaker has to go into the underworld to rescue their beloved. And so a lot of this book feels like a journey, a journey into the underworld, but oh no, everything about it is set up really intentionally. Like I'd love for readers to track when a flower actually appears in the book and what happens the next time a flower appears, because I promise you there's a pattern for that. There's a pattern to how all the poems about paintings are set up, how all the poems about scientific experiments are set up. Um, even just like, oh no. Um, when certain people, you know, crop up and when they disappear, who remains? Um, I'll say that. I have um, a question. I feel like I'm cheating because like I've, I've been to another Paula event <laughs> and like I've heard like great answers and I'm just like, ooh, say that again, say that again. Um, but I would love uh, for this audience to, uh, you talk about the way that you use wordplay or, or, or how you teach your readers how to read a poem, mm. how to read your poems specifically. Yes. yes. Okay. So two things. One, um, I believe that every poem has to make, and naturally is, but has to make an argument about poetry itself. Because that poem, when it has the spirit and, and of its maker, you know, all their intersecting identities, all their lived experience mapped onto it. No poem like that would have ever been written before, not by that person. And so it has to make an argument about poetry is and what poetry can do. 
And then in a whole book, I think the book has to make an argument about what poetry is and what poetry can do. I found that it's not been enough for me just to tell the story of my life. It's, it's to, to, to say why in this art form, why as language. And so a book I, I was taught has to teach a reader how to read it. And I mean, the first one, the book that you had me read, Kihai, Orchard of Knowing, it's in most of typically sonnet form. Um, it doesn't, it's, it's not metrically and it's not um, by rhyme, a formal sonnet, but it's in sonnet form, but it's about a Vietnamese folk story. That's the first argument I make is that I am proficient in this, you know, but also it's in persona and I've chosen the biggest persona there is, the Buddha. <laughs> and, and, and it's an argument about confidence too, about heritage, inheritance. Um, but in the second poem, in the second poem, which is incident report, which is an actual report I had to fill out after I was assaulted, there's the, the report asks for my affiliation and my residence at the institution. And one of the lines go, I misread affiliation as affliction. I misread residence as residual. It meant that during this time, symptomatically, I was seeing things that weren't there, misunderstanding things, misperceiving things. Um, and I thought, how can I enact that kind of strange um, behavior that I developed, strange way that I developed? How can I enact that in poetry? And in the next poem, the poem immediately after, one of the lines go, um, she changes, this is about my mother, she changes and is changed by how she tells her story. There's no truth, only a version, a version, a verge of vengeance. And so I slide sonically that term, a version, into the word a version into the word a verge, into the word a vengeance. Um, and I think I'm trying to use wordplay to quickly get the reader to understand how one person's investment in a narrative is, is not unrelated to their emotional or psychic need for a revenge on history. Um, that my mother's version of how her life went down is connected to her kneeling, her needing to feel okay, um, to be strong, and even if if how, if how she's told it to me is true or not, I'll never know. But I know that she needed to tell the story this way to survive, and and so that's what I was trying to get folks to. But I do that um, a couple. I do that more and more through the book. Like later on, there's a poem that goes, "When I'm deliberate, I'm liberated." And you can't spell the word deliberate without the word liberate. And so if liberation can be found inside the word deliberate, that's teaching me that I have to be deliberate in my life with my choices to be free. And later on, there's a moment that goes, um, I'm no artifact between art and fact, I. And it was the moment I realized, oh my gosh, to spell the word artifact, it's art, the speaker I and fact. And that's how I saw my life stuck between the fact of what happened 
and who I hope to be through the art. Yeah. Almost crushed by them. And oh no, so that's how language emerges. And I also think it has something to do with Vietnamese, how one word has like six different meanings, right? The word for mom um, is honestly also- Honestly so annoying. <laughs> it's so it's like, what do you say? And then you get the regional dialects playing. Mm -hmm. And so I think word wordplay was so much a part of who I, who I am. And it's how I get my people into the aesthetics you, of the poem. Yeah, you also, you were the person that taught me that um, you can't spell scholar without ho. That is true. You cannot spell scholar without ho. Yeah. <laughs> or home, or hope, or whole. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I love everything that you've said. And I think about, um, you know, A Hundred Bells by Tarfia Fezula. And um, is it called, is the poem called Say It Any Way You Can by Vivi Francis? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, that, that lineage of like the, those poems and being like um, that kind of thing of like the poetic of the feeling and that also being as much of the truth as like the the quote unquote fact of what happened, right? So it's like the poetic and and what even is like, especially in fragmented memories and yeah. in memories that are filled with trauma and memories that are like kind of coated with dust a little bit. Like what is what is the truth? And and sometimes it's like there's there's more truth in the poetic than there is in the fact. Yes. Like there's just so much more there and. Um, I feel like that is such a thing that I feel like I hear you say in your poems that I hear you articulate in your work is like that kind of um, that kind of duality of, and, and the duality of being like, and yet I am deliberate, like, and yet I am intentional and yet I can do this and I can do this in this way. And also I don't lose the kind of like, almost like the, the, th the goal, the, the, thread of the poetic that connects us to spirit and to, yes. you know, into a lineage, lineages that mm -hmm. are so multiple. And that I think is a real kind of, um, that's a real kind of like specific, um, like holy work to be able mm -hmm. to do that, to be able to say, I honor this and I honor the deliberateness and I honor the craft. And I, I can know this well enough to fuck it up and to like mm -hmm. make it go further than it's mm -hmm. been, um, which mm -hmm. I think is just such an incredible um, feat, you know, to, to have accomplished. Yes. I mean, Fatih, what you just said resonates with me because there's a way to fuck something up and destroy it and it becomes unusable. And then there's a way to fuck something up to make something better out of it, to make it do its right. Because how many people, you know, they use fuck it up as a mask for simply destruction and out of what just destruction happened, right? And there's a way that the dismantling, oh no, I, I want to show that poets like us can do more than just show that we're, that we can do this, that we have ideas and we have ideas about how to bring all of ourselves into the work um, in a responsible, inspired way. And, and asking, I'm thinking yeah, a lot about, yeah. oh, sorry, I'm thinking about a lot about the question, like 
five questions ago mm-hmm. um, about, uh, you know, being like trying to balance like humility and being like that bitch, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I think one one way that I find it in your poems um, is that the, the poems don't give off that energy because of its arrogance or, or certainty, mm-hmm. but because it is so absolutely uncertain mm-hmm. about what is ahead, right? Mm-hmm. That it is kind of surrendering itself. And in that surrender, you get this, this, this like, I think you, you, you taught me this, um, this actualized self. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one thing I want, I love, I love this book. Um, I feel like it changed me. And that, and also like the speaker in it goes in, there's this, this like, adventure right and and Mm -hmm. and and it goes the speaker in every poem enters the poem and then leaves changed as Mm -hmm. does the reader right but also the whole book we enter the book one way we leave changed is that was that also your experience with writing the book or Mm -hmm. or 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 was it something that you had to go through first before you could write it 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 was both I mean, I think the, I said that a, the poem is no better than the poet, um, which is my adaptation of Toni Morrison's Love is Never Better, Any Better Than the Lover from the Bluest Eye. And I think that an actualized poem requires the actualization of that poet. We have to live and live, laugh, laugh, live, learn, and grow. <laughs> Um, in order, because we can revise anything in a poem, right? Make the language more beautiful, all those things. We can be done at the at the craft level. But if the spirit of the poem hasn't changed, if the heart, um, <laughs> the heart of the poem doesn't change, then then it's just it's just the same the same unrealized core with a different exterior, right? Um, so I'm so distracted by this chat over here. Um, Just us two. <laughs> I know, no, I know, I know, I know. Um, but I, I wanted to be a different person by the time I put down my pen. And I think I knew the book was done when I felt like, okay, for the time being, I've learned all I can learn let me write it down before I forget. Um, And I mean, one of the last poems I wrote was Scheherazade and it was because I was on the phone with Franny and she said, it was right at the beginning of quarantine and she said the word helpless. And, you know, the, the call ended, I put down my phone and I thought, helpless sounds like the word hopeless. And I thought, is the line, even when I felt helpless, I wasn't hopeless or, you know, the other way around. And yet, like, I needed to have that conversation with her to hear that word, to have that line, then to do that poem. Um, So sometimes it's just someone coming and changing me, really. Yeah. I, I think we have four questions in oh, the box. Cool. Yes. Um, 
I was just gonna pop back in and say that we have some audience questions if you're ready for that. And I think yes. um, you can all answer these. I would love to hear. Yes, please. Um, a great question from April who says, what has writing this book helped you reclaim? Ooh. Um... I didn't like where I was going um, with my life. And I think this book helped me get control of my life back and um, a way to move forward as a better person and to love the people I love better. Um, so I'll say that, my life. Um, did Fatima or Hugh, did your writing your books help you reclaim anything or not? Um, I think, yes, yes, I it, it, similar to Paul, um, but I think it also allowed me to take control in, in what I was willing to mm -hmm. offer people. Um, and especially I think like there is such, a, for poets who like begin on the stage, right? There is no separation between like the, the poet and the speaker, right? Um, and then like, but but through a poem and like through, we, we learn that there can be. And um, I think I learned in writing my, in my book, uh, how to control what a reader or what an audience wants from me and, and, and be like, what I'm going to offer you is enough. And, um, or this is what I'm willing to give you now. Um, and, and not feel as if I have to like give over everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, um, so like, Every book I've, I mean, I've only written two books, but, but both books I've written have really like transformed me. And I think that there is a process of um, so much, like there's so much reclaiming, there's so much transformation. And in some ways it's also, I think mo I'm thinking most recently about the novel that I'm working on that's going to come out um, in October this year. And um it's like just really helped me reclaim things that were like so difficult for me that made that and things that made me feel like I was uh, like, you know, other people's narratives that were over me and then me being able to assert my own. And even though it's in the realm of fiction, being able to just like kind of grapple with and sit with that. And so I think that there's just every single book has kind of somebody once said this thing I can't, I can't remember who it was, but they were like, if people were honest, they would, everybody's always like, what book changed your life? And if people were honest, they would say it's the one that they wrote. Like literally mm -hmm. the one that they wrote is the one that really changes your life. And I think that's true. I think like all art you make is transformative. You know, it, there, there's a huge process of transformation that happens when you make a piece of work. Um, you can't enter it. It's it, Paula's answer. You cannot enter your work the same way that if you, you know, when you started writing it to when you yeah. ended, like there's an entire 
entirety of transformation that happens through the process of creation. Um, and we should let ourselves be transformed by the process of creation. It's such a huge and pivotal part of being alive is, is creation and transformation. And so um, just like how important that is. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. I love that answer. Um, another question is from Eileen, who says, what did you learn about yourself in the process of writing this book? Um, I mean, I think I learned about myself. I think I, I put into the book and of them. I don't know. I, I think I was embarrassed with who I was and very, um, I don't know, I didn't know how to be a person in the world. And the desire to change did not immediately come with how to change. And writing these poems, I learned that there was still so much growing up I had to do, how I had to shift my perspective on love like with my family, do I need them to know what happened? Or can skirting around the story, pretending like things are okay is enough? Um, and I saw that for a moment it could be enough, that to love them meant I had to spare them from what happened to me. And I don't know, a lot of things, but most of all, I, I think that there's still a lot of growing up to do. and. Hopefully the next book and the book after that will show how that journey unfolds. Thank you so much. Um, we're, we are running out of time. I loathe to say, you know, it's over because I feel like um, everyone should order the book and yes. read it. If you haven't already, do it. Order all three of these poets' books. Um, they're remarkable. Uh, do you have any final thoughts or questions or anything before we say goodnight? No, just thank you so much. Thank you so much, Hallie. Thank you so much. Skylight Books and everyone who's coming and spending the evening with us. Thank you, Fati. Thank you, Hugh, for celebrating with me. Um, these poems wouldn't have been possible without you. Thank you so much, yeah. Paul. I love you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>